All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, before we jump into this episode, super excited about our newest sponsor, Reserve. Big shout out to Reserve. They are the easiest way to design, deploy, and govern stable coins backed by a diverse set of assets with access to DeFi yield and insurance. If you don't know Reserve, we're super excited about them here at Bell Curve. You'll hear more about them later in the show. We didn't really have a need to raise funds, and that meant we didn't have to compromise on the core goals of ENS and, and being nonprofit and decentralized and, and a public good. Um, and so the DAO came as a natural evolution in our governance story rather than a need for survival. All right, everyone, welcome back to uh, another episode of Bell Curve. We got the last episode of the season here. Uh, super exciting guest. We got Nick Johnson, founder and lead dev of ENS. I have to tell you the title now because you'll hear in the episode I completely botched the intro. So, uh, yeah, Mike, what did you think of this one? I thought it was great. The reason why we wanted to have Nick on is... You know, one of the themes that maybe some of you sensed if you've been following along with us throughout the entire season is sort of this idea, you know, of, well, where can we borrow lessons from corporate governance and implement them in, in Dow land? And I think there's sort of another, you know, I think Jason and I are, are pretty sympathetic to some of those arguments, especially when it comes down to optimizing for, for good and efficient decision making. But we wanted to have someone who represented not the other side of that argument, but just a different and distinct perspective for what DAOs could be. And that's sort of within the community of people who are dedicated towards building public goods, which Nick was like very firmly in that camp. Um, and he's also the, you know, the founder and, and sort of maybe shepherd of one of the most successful DAOs, I think, out there today. So we wanted to get his perspective. And honestly, I came away kind of yeah, like really seeing a perspective that I hadn't necessarily thought deeply about, but it was a it was a fascinating conversation. He had some very concrete, very interesting ideas about how DAOs are likely to evolve from here. So I thought it was a great conversation. Yeah, I did too. Let's get into it. We'll see you guys on the other side. Awesome, everyone. Welcome back to uh, the season finale of Bell Curve, actually. It's been an awesome uh, season chatting with folks like, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode with Chris Berniski and Fernando. Um, yeah, really excited to bring this season to a close. And we have uh, none other than Nick, uh, from ENS, lead developer, and uh, oh my god, Nick just told me how he wanted to get introduced here, and I completely botched it already. Lead developer of ENS, so that's that's what I'm going with, Nick. But how did I do there? <laughs> that, that's all good. Close enough. <laughs> so, Nick, Guys, you, you missed this like two seconds before we launched the, the recording here. We're like, what, what is the title? Uh, and uh, Jason, we, we got fifty percent of the way there, but uh, you'd think I would be able to memorize like two two things there, so but I couldn't. Um, so, Nick, I think it'd be really helpful. There's a lot of uh, I guess more specific questions I have about like running ENS and just operating inside of the DAO there and kicking it off. But I think it would be really helpful to take us actually back to the early days. Because when I think about how people launch DAOs today, they're like, they launch with a token and this huge fundraise. And you guys did it in a more like bootstrapped way, which is actually very similar to how like, when I think of the Blockwork story, like bootstrapping and near kind of and dear to your way hearts. to find, yeah. yeah, near and dear to our hearts and like um, very, kind of similar stories. So I'd love to, for you to take us back maybe five years, six years um, to, to sure. the beginning days. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess the perhaps a key difference is that our goal from the start was never specifically to launch a DAO. It was sort of maximal, maximal achievable de decentralization. And back in the day, it wasn't clear that, you know, the structure of DAOs was what was going to survive. Uh, you know, at the time when we launched ENS, the only example we had to go on was the DAO. And needless to say, it wasn't a glowing endorsement of the, the structure uh, at the time. So, you know, we started off very cautiously with uh, control over ENS's essential, you know, buttons and levers being uh, controlled by a multi-sig of not unlike most teams, not of team members, but of independent individuals in the community. And we moved on from that, you know, progressively as we became confident that the, uh, you know, the growing ecosystem and that the uh, technology could support, you know, increased decentralization. And so we worked to remove the powers of the key holders, you know, just remove human control entirely and then to move what remained over to the DAO. And so we sort of launched the DAO, you know, purely definitely as a governance mechanism because there are some things in ENS that 
have to be upgradable and have to be manageable and so on. And then there's the question of what to do with the funds raised from registration fees. And we thought the community deserved input in all of that. When you think about why you guys, when you think about why you actually turned into the DAO, I, I know you were kind of alluding to that, but why, I mean, a lot of companies back then, they decided to run as decentralized entities and they raised some money and they got some revenue and they just kind of kept building and maybe they raised a series A and a series B. You guys took a different approach. What, 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 can you dig deeper into that decision? Yeah, so so ENS is very much a public good, and you know its goal is not to make a return for any shareholders. We don't have any. Its goal isn't to extract maximum value. In fact, its to, its goal is to leave as much value behind as possible for the the people using it. You know, and so we were fortunate enough to start off with a very generous grant from the Ethereum Foundation, um, which kept us going initially. Um, and then you know, very fortunate that the registration fees and the premiums and so on that are necessary to make ENS work well, you know, to, to have a system where a few early birds don't get all the worms, so to speak, um, were also sufficient, uh, more than sufficient, to support us in our ongoing operations. So we didn't really have a need to raise funds, and that meant we didn't have to compromise on the core goals of ENS and, and being non-profit and decentralised and, and a public good. Um, and so the DAO came as a natural evolution in our governance story rather than a need for survival. I've got a question for you there. I'd be very curious because we, we've talked a little bit about public goods throughout this season. What, what was the, is the desire to be a public good as opposed to uh, like a protocol or an entity or whatever that sort of maximizes profit? Can, can you just walk us through like what the, uh, like how you conceptualize a public goods overall and then why you decided that to be the mission? I mean, I you mentioned protocols, and I think protocols should all be public goods too. You know, the you know a protocol shouldn't have a, a treasury. It shouldn't have you know as, as much as possible. It shouldn't have governance, but sometimes that's inevitable. Um, and I guess to me, like I grew up in the the eighties and nineties, like you know, as the internet was sort of became a thing that consumers could access and I was fascinated with how it worked and and how the whole governance of it was open through the IETF and RFCs that I could just download and read and learn how the internet worked and that whole um, you know openness um, and that whole you know t treatment of all of this as a public good and as a thing that everyone should build and improve on made a huge impression on me and I think it's a very large part of why the internet succeeded as it did you know they basically making things for profit necessarily erect barriers to to entry you know it, in order to make a profit you have to extract some value and i'm not rubbishing making profit like you know private enterprise obviously makes a great deal of sense but when it comes to our basic protocols and infrastructure i i really believe they should be operated uh, as something that you know is a benefit to all um, and that makes it far more uh, practical to innovate on top of it why why is that nick how how come like what's the downside of you guys if if you guys uh, hadn't gone down this route back back in the day there was like AOL and and the internet and AOL had like very much the permissioned walled garden approach to things and it didn't succeed in large part because everyone had to buy into it you know in order to use it they had all of this additional friction set up and that can you can kind of make that work if you've got an effective monopoly um you know, like, for instance, Apple does with the iPhone. Um, but anything short of that, uh, you, you don't. And the even if you make it work, all of the, the value you're extracting is, is value that doesn't get sort of reinvested into improving the ecosystem. You know, I think the internet is the thriving thing it is today because nobody had to ask anyone else's permission to, like, invent Netflix or something, you know. Whereas if we had a permission network like the ones before, then innovation is as slow as the slowest regulator basically mm. okay i've got a i've got a question for you there because you 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 mentioned that public all protocols that are part of the core infrastructure layer of crypto should be public goods so i'd be very curious to to understand like where you how you determine what kind of falls into which protocols fall into sort of the core infrastructure layer and then what should be more consumer facing applications mm-hmm I I mean I guess it's a maybe it's a fundamentalist position but I guess anything that is infrastructure for other projects just about uh you know and and 
it's I guess it's a it's kind of a know it when you see it distinction. You know, I I, I really think that, for instance, Ethereum should be a public good. I think that uh, L2s should be public goods. Um, I don't necessarily think that, like, just because you provide an API that's consumed by other people, you need to be a public good. You know, it, it sort of depends what you're bringing to the, the, the table, effectively. But I, I really think that, basically, if you're encouraging people to innovate on top of your platform, then your platform should be open. Uh, and most of the time, that means it should be a public good as well. What, what, about, what about protocols that maybe sit one layer up, up there, like, uh, like the Uniswaps? Aves, I'd call them like the blue chips of DeFi, Maker, Uniswap, Aave, those folks. Mm-hmm. I, I guess uh, maybe maybe a better distinction to draw here is the the anti-competitive nature of some layers of the platform of the protocol. You know, so we can reasonably expect there to be one or a few large chains going forward, and entry to that ecosystem is really difficult and they're naturally sort of exclusionary and that's why i believe they should be public goods when you look at an ecosystem like uh you know um dexes and so forth like uniswap those uh those uh factors still exist but to a much lesser degree you know a, a superior dex can survive and thrive on its merits um and and beat uniswap and you know that there's there's less of a sort of a you know they're not infrastructure they're applications at least in my mind i've i've got a you know one of the and i'm, I'm probably at the risk of rehashing uh a, in sort of an age-old debate and one that i'm sure you're pretty familiar with i think the from a user perspective and kind of just like an overall human fairness sort of perspective i under i think most people sort of intrinsically understand the argument for public goods right it's annoying to interact with a service where you're feeling you're just being extracted, uh, you know, for to generate profits for some nameless, faceless uh, sort of corporation that has a lot of leverage. On the other hand, that sort of mechanism that we have, this sort of freedmen, you know, generate profits, that's a that's a way of economize or, or organizing activity, right? Human activity, that that market, right, kind of tells us where we should be spending our time and it helps allocate resources. How how do we do that in the land of of public goods, right? Because on the one hand, we we want like an infrastructure layer that should power the whole next generation of you know economic X Y Z that's built on top of that infrastructure layer. How can we ensure that we're getting proper talent to to build that layer? Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely it's one of the biggest problems with anything that's built as a public good, effectively. And you know, and, and traditionally the answer has been you know involvement from government in in building something you know like that um i think you know web3 has a unique opportunity to turn that round and and create self-funding public goods um and a lot of that ultimately relies on sort of maybe non-game theoretically optimal uh behavior like you know giving back to the platforms that enable your application to work um, but it doesn't always have to be like that, you know. So in the case of ENS, we levy registration fees in order for the system to work best, you know. Because if we didn't, every ENS name that was of the slightest bit of interest would already be snapped up on the secondary market and almost impossible to use. Um, but a side effect is that we get ample funding to fund our ongoing existence and and also make grants to other uh, public goods. So I guess the to a large degree, it hinges on people recognizing the value of having these things be public goods and be willing to to make contributions to make sure they continue to exist. But there are some places and some people doing like token engineering commons doing some really exciting work around trying to make sure that these things are sustainable on their own without relying on people's goodwill necessarily. Nick, there's something that people don't talk about oftentimes with public goods, which is I think the people who start public goods are maybe either, I don't know how much, like, I don't know if this is like too sensitive of a subject, but like are already wealthy oftentimes because to start public goods, like you're not chasing money and like maybe first time entrepreneurs or second time entrepreneurs, like, or like, honestly, a lot of people who live in America, like they want to go like build a company and raise money and then IPO or something like that and make money. It's like very few and far between that you find people who are like, Oh no! Actually, I don't really care about the money. I, can you just maybe tell me about like who, just the makeup of the team that starts this, or like the psychology of the team behind this? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, I guess everyone on the team is is dedicated to the mission, you know, that we're building and the the idea that this is a public good. But I also, I feel like there's this pervasive attitude, like not just in, in Web3, but like the wider ecosystem, you know, the world, that in order to work at a, a non-profit or a charity, you have to be paid badly in sacrifice. And, you know, I obviously I don't think we should lavishly reward, you know, people with like ridiculous salaries and so on, but I think it's totally reasonable to pay people the market rate. I don't think you should have to, uh, you know, be, you know, self-abasing in order to build these things, you know. So the people who who work at ENS Labs are very much values aligned because that's what we hire on. We want people who believe in our mission, but they're not they're not doing so, you know, we haven't had to make them make that choice, you know, between doing what they love and doing what pays the bills. Just out of curiosity from a, like the standpoint of issuing a, a token, right? Like generally when you issue, I know there's a difference between equity and, and tokens, but you know, when you issue equity, that's like you're selling ownership and theoretically there's some claim on the future cash flows or the right to influence the the governance of the, the company and stuff like that. ENS has a token, so I just I'd be curious how you think about tokens in the land of in the land of public goods. It's kind of an imperfect relationship, you know, in in the sense that they're the best tool we had available in our toolbox, um, but they definitely have shortcomings, and the sort of tendency towards plutocracy is very much one of those. You know, we explicitly launched the token as a governance token. We didn't start or or uh, provide liquidity to or, or interact in any way with any of the markets that sprung up. But of course, it's inevitable that you launch something that some people have and other people want, and they'll trade it for money, you know. Um, our goal, though, has been to keep it very much a governance token, you know, to the degree that's possible with a free market all around us. Um, and you know the the part one of the tools towards that is we wrote the ENS constitution which was you know ratified overwhelmingly um you know when the airdrop happened um that explicitly states you know that the revenues ENS gets will not be dispersed to token holders basically you know the the money that comes in is not uh you know to be paid out as a, a dividend or whatever it's to be used to build and enhance the system and then to reinvest in other public goods so that even that phrase, uh, constitution, that's a little bit of a funny phrase, right? To talk about sort of uh, bylaws of an organization, right? If this was LSU, to be talking about the Articles of Incorporation or the operating doc or, or whatever. Um, I'd be curious, like moving a little bit into what it's been like to run a DAO or, you know, or to start a DAO, right? And, and kind of, um, uh, you know, shepherd it from, from its early days. You know, what did the beginnings of the DAO look like? How, you know, how is that sort of scaling a DAO as opposed to a, a small company? And, and what does it kind of look like today? What are the sort of key structures that people should understand in terms of how it works from a governance perspective? Can, can I just add one, one question to that too, which is like, when do you, how like do you know? questions in there. Yeah, yeah. Let me add like. <laughs> add a fifth question. Uh, how do you know when is the right time? Because my, if I'm trying to remember the early days of ENS and I think it didn't launch as a DAO. And then it, like after you built, you got product market fit, it became a DAO. So like, Maybe take us back to like, how do you know once something is ready to become a DAO? And then I think get into Mike's questions if that okay. works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I'll, I'll answer the questions I can remember in the order that <laughs> seems uh, sensible to me. Uh, so yeah, ENS didn't launch as a DAO and there were a couple of main reasons for that. One is that we felt the ecosystem was very unready uh, at the time. You know, like I said, the, the only DAO we had examples of was the DAO. Um, the tooling wasn't there, the community wasn't there, the examples of good DAO governance weren't there, and we kind of, this is one area we didn't want to pioneer when there was so much at risk. Um, and the second reason is that there was still too much human control over essential areas of ENS. You know, the one of our goals was in fact to, to not just decentralise control, but also to reduce it as much as possible while still making the system viable. So, you know, the the things that changed were uh, the development of things like uh, the compound governor uh, contract and then Open Zeppelin's subsequent release of a, a rewritten version of that So, a, a, a demonstration of that working in real life. You know, we wanted 
we felt it was really important that it be actually decentralized and operate on chain and not be the DAO says something and then the five people who actually control it agree to do that thing, you know. Um, and the other thing that changed was we were able to reduce some of the human control over ENS. So one of the prerequisites in my mind for moving over to a DAO was that we flipped a switch that meant that uh, even the DAO, even the key holders, you know, there was no privileged entity who could replace the .eth registrar, which means that once you've registered a .eth name for, say, 10 years, no action that anyone can take can affect or revoke or transfer that registration. The DAO, or the originally the key holders and now the DAO, can still change the registration and renewal rules, but only with a waiting period. And once you've registered your name, it's yours, it's safe. Uh, and I thought that was a really important power to remove from anybody before we handed things over to the DAO. So at least it makes the worst case less bad. How has it been, I mean, just from a, I mean, look, even just talking to you, you're clearly a, a you know, very dedicated, uh, very competent individual, right? Who, you know, we were talking sort of before we got on air, and you may think of yourself as an engineer, but having to do like a little bit more of a traditional sort of leadership uh, management sort of role. Uh, I, you know, I'd be curious, one of the like kind of a the double-edged sword of DAOs, right? Which is that there's less that's totally dependent on you. But on the other hand, this is your baby. You know, you, you help grow this thing and create it. I mean, how has it been to actually decentralize some of that decision-making in practice? Uh, frustrating at times. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. worthwhile. But, um, you know, the, the further we get from the things that were clearly, you know, defined when we launched the DAO, the more diversity of opinion you expect. And, you know, at times when I feel like I have a clear vision for what the right thing for the DAO or ENS to do is, and other people have a very different vision, uh, you know, that can be quite frustrating uh, to, 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 to handle. Um, but also, you know, it's essential because some of these times are when the, you know, the best unexpected input has come, you know, the, the stuff that's made us step back and go, actually, no, that's a much better approach than what we were, you know, intending to do. Um, and I guess the evolution of the governance of the DAO is a good example of that. Like we started off with, uh, you know, a delegated voting system. So we had delegates and delegates sort of tried to deal with everything directly. And then that evolved into a system where we elect stewards uh, for different working groups. Um, and those stewards are responsible for day-to-day -day operations and have access to budget that doesn't require like DAO approval for every single, you know, $500 grant or whatever. Um, and then that evolved into having a lead steward whose job it is to sort of shepherd the DAO as a whole and make sure that everybody's at least sort of facing the same direction, even if they don't agree on where we should be going. Nick, how do you think about, like, let's say someone's listening to this and they maybe don't spend much time in, in DAO land. And they're what 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 they probably just heard is like, mm, okay, Nick. Well, what I'm hearing is you got a you got a CEO, and you got a bunch of you got a VP of sales, you got a VP of marketing, you got a VP of engineering, and they've got these teams. And you do a budget at the beginning of the year, and uh, you you meet quarterly to review the goals. So, mm -hmm. what is your in your like, what is the difference in your mind? Uh, I mean, I think the crucial difference is that it is all governed ultimately by the token holders who you know represent the people who, who have a voice in the DAO. And there are a lot of parallels to corporate governance. The crucial difference is that the people governing it aren't shareholders, are there to sort of, you know, further the DAO and so on. And it's it's built more like a co-op than it is like a for-profit company. Um, I think the people mistake... Uh, I have a couple of pet peeves here. One is people think that decentralization means every single person giving their full attention to every single decision. But delegation is both necessary and and useful. You know, like it's unreasonable, for instance, to expect that every voter in the DAO or even every delegate read the entirety of all of the endowment proposals that were submitted. There was like eight of them in excruciating detail to develop a, a comprehensive position. Um, and so I think it was reasonable that you delegate that responsibility to someone to summarize so that you can make a decision on that basis. And if somebody isn't upholding their position, the crucial thing is, of course, they can be replaced, you know, they at the next election or, or earlier if need be. Um, I think the fact that we're decentralized shouldn't stop us from borrowing the sensible things from corporate structure where they help us, uh, you know, build a system that actually works and doesn't just get caught up in 
like shitting the whole time. I'm not hypothetical here by you. I think you, so the main value prop that you said was, um, you know, you've got the main difference in that system versus maybe the corporate system is that you have all these like individual stakeholders. And at the end of the day, yeah, maybe you have like, you do these things that look like corporate governance, but really you have all these individual token holders who, who manage the thing. Let's say there's a, let's say in 2023, a couple of big funds come along and they're like, man, ENS looks like a screaming buy. We're going to load up on ENS right now. And they, and there's, and the token holders like, huh, interesting. I'm really behind this mission, but also bear market would love to make some money. And they sell to these VCs. And now you have three VCs who own the majority of the tokens. How does that, how, like, how do you think about that situation? It's, it's probably my biggest hesitation and risk over, um, mm. you know, over decentralizing into a DAO that's token driven in the first place. Um, and the defenses against it, I think, are mostly uh, partly social and partly financial. And so from the social point of view, you know, the the tokens were given out, you know, 25% to uh, people who had participated in the ecosystem. And we tried to weight that towards people who had been involved for longer and who showed longer term commitment to ENS, which, you know, hopefully means some dedication to seeing that it continues to work. And 25% to the people who helped build the system, which means, you know, myself and the team and other external contributors uh, have a, you know, a significant interest in, in seeing it continues to function. Um, and so from the social point of view, you know, I certainly hope that in a situation like that, there will be enough holdouts who, who resist the profit motive in order to help ensure that this continues well into the future. And, you know, the, the constitution also helps act as a, a friction mechanism against doing that. Um, from the financial point of view, um, I hope that it, you know, that the goal is that it continues to be cost ineffective to buy up enough tokens to extract the value from the treasury. You know, you would have to pay more to take over ENS than you could possibly gain through doing so. And, you know, part of the way we can continue to ensure that's the case is to continue to put those funds to good use on public goods and other ecosystem initiatives so that we don't have this massive war chest just acting like a big, you know, come get me sign to anyone, any corporate raiders. I, had, I have to admit, Nick, you, you had to make me look up the term bike shedding. I know I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, I, uh, I, there I is a... <laughs> yeah, but there is an in-joke in the team that I use, like, neologisms all the time, uh, and that, you know, every day there's, like, some word or phrase that they've never heard before, and every so often one of them will be like, no, there's no way that's a real thing, you're having it on this time, and they'll look it up and, and know it's a real thing, you know, and then the joke is that eventually I'll just start dropping nonsense words in there and nobody will call me on it. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, do, you, do you do you just love vocab, Nick? What's this like? Do you just I, I I guess so. It's a combination of that and being a Kiwi and therefore having a slightly different dialect and all of our own yeah. slang and stuff. Uh, and having like I've lived in New Zealand, Ireland, Australia, and the UK, so I guess I've picked up some of that from a bunch of places. Nick, you should try to drop a fake word into this conversation and see if we mm -hmm. call you out for it and let oh, us know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Well. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. All right, everyone. Brief break in the show here to talk about our newest sponsor, Reserve. So, you know, it's looking pretty bleak out there. It's not looking that great. We know what the one thing there's no bear market in? Stable coins. Stables, baby. Stables. We love those stable coins, uh, which is why we're excited to partner with Reserve Protocol. So let's just start with the basics. What is Reserve? It's a self-service platform to build, deploy, and govern asset-backed stable coins, uh, which can be integrated with DeFi or within the real economy. So... The cool thing about Reserve is basically anyone out there, permissionlessly, can take any set of ERC-20 tokens and use them to collateralize their own stablecoin. So the long-term goal of the Reserve Protocol is to create a non-inflationary currency that is stable on a month-to-month -month basis, but also a century-to-century -century basis. In the meantime, though, they're open-sourcing design decisions for stablecoins, which is just super, super cool. I think one of the benefits that you get there is diversification. You hear it all the time in Finance 101, no such thing as a free lunch except for diversification. That's what you're getting with Reserve Protocol. Yeah, I've known the team for a long time. I spoke on a panel at SF Blockchain Week with Nevin, uh, with Joe Carlson and, and Alex Gladstein. Really impressive uh, growth that they've been able to have so far, right? Their premier stablecoin is RSV. It is backed by three other stables. It's already used by over half a million people transacting over $300 million a month. 
right now, like Mike was talking about, anyone can go create a custom bespoke stablecoin using the reserve protocol. You can back it by maybe specific USD stables, or you can get uh, creative and you know maybe build something more complex like inversely correlated assets. The branding, governance, and composition are completely up to you. And lastly, if there are any builders who are listening and you aren't interested in issuing your own stablecoin, what you can do is you can stake reserves governance token against your favorite stable strategies. So what you're doing there is you're providing backstop insurance to stablecoin holders. Not riskless, right? Not financial advice. There's definitely some risk in doing that, but it does allow you to earn yield, especially now in crypto when there are so few ways to do that. It's definitely worth checking out. So at the very least, you should click the link at the bottom of this episode. Go check out the Reserve website. See all the cool stuff they're up to. Most importantly, though, click this link. you got to give Jason and me some credit here. Show right? us some love. Uh, show us some love. Give us some love, baby. Give us some love. <laughs> all right. Now back to the show. Let's get into it. One of the things that's happened is like you had this like really – you had this vision. You were locked in on like where ENS was going to go. And the more people that join your team, naturally, the the – the maybe more people disagree with where that vision is going and some, and some really good things have come out of it. What have been like the downsides of that? Like, have there ever been times where you're, where you've basically been sitting there and said to yourself like, Oh my God, I know we've got this mission, but my God, I wish we just had a centralized company where I could make some decisions pretty quickly right now. Uh, I mean, the, the fortunate thing is like, we've got the Dow and we've got ENS labs and ENS labs kind of is a centralized company in the sense that, you know, Myself and Corey, our executive director, run it. You know, everyone's hired as a contractor for it, and we get a budget from the Dow. So we're still accountable to them, but, uh, you know, we're able to make our own decisions. You know, we don't have to be micromanaged by the Dow for, um, you know, exactly how the design of the new manager should look or, or stuff like that. Um, so I feel like we've got a reasonable trade-off there. Uh, and I think the whole sort of development org thing, as long as it can be meaningfully fired by the DAO, if it turns out to just be a way to, you know, funnel cash to the, the owners, um, is a, is another good way to do this. And in fact, I kind of hope that we'll see other development orgs with parallel, you know, non-intersecting goals spring up and also be funded. You know, I would love to see other... Uh, companies that are building ENS in other ways, you know, also be just as essential to the DAO as we are today. I have a, I have a, I have a couple of questions around like voting and some of the mechanics around voting. So, mm -hmm. you know, right now it seems like the pervasive method for voting in DAOs is like one-to-one -one token voting. Um, I'd be very curious about what you, what you, do you think that's the final end state for how voting and decision-making happens in DAOs? It's a, it's a, difficult problem because the alternatives all pretty much rely on some way to prove individual identity you know things like quadratic voting are really elegant mm -hmm. but they only work if you could solve the simple problem and you know that means being able to prove that somebody is an individual human uh, so that you can't just spread your tokens around 10 different accounts that you claim are 10 different people and mm -hmm. you know there's a bunch of systems that try and solve this they're pretty much all centralized uh, so you're effectively giving a gatekeeper control over who can participate in governance mm -hmm. um, and even if they weren't they have significant drawbacks like even if you imagine a perfect proof of identity system that can somehow just like tell who the individual humans are you know trustlessly and without you know zero knowledge um, you could still just literally go out on the street and offer 50 bucks to anyone who lets you use their identity for something they don't care about and will never touch and probably about half the people you approach should be like yeah sure what's you know what's it to me um so it it has it really does have some significant drawbacks but i'm not aware of like i, I just haven't seen a system that seems robust enough to replace it I've got a, there was a proposal a little while ago, I can't remember what it was for, but I remember, I think it was ARCA that opposed it, but it was something to the effect of like a VE locking mechanism when it came to governance, where you would take your tokens and you would lock, you'd, you know, you'd stake them, right? And you'd say, hey, I like have these decisions about how I think the protocol should be run, and I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to stake this, right, for some period of time, or put some up for... Uh, you know, that could, I guess, that wouldn't be getting slashed, but they would be, you know, I'll put them at stake. And I don't know, I think it was, there was a lot of pushback on it. I personally thought it sounded super interesting. I like as a, as someone who is founder, like, a, you know, a small business, and a, I could imagine what it would be like to have publicly circulating stock. And 
you know, you read the, you listen to these things about Carl Icahn coming in and demanding that you need to stop doing what you're doing. And sometimes I'm with Carl Icahn, but sometimes I'm like, come on, dude. Yeah, like, let's, let's be honest about what this is. You got here yesterday, you know? Uh, <laughs> and I do think that there's some interesting premium on being able to, like, put your money where your mouth is and lock up your tokens and uh, get, like, outsized voting because you're putting your economics at stake. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a mechanism I've seen before but haven't really considered in detail for the DAO. Mm. I do think it's a really interesting mechanism because, yeah, just to expand on what you're saying, it uh, it provides a way to, to show that somebody is long-term committed to the organization right. and therefore, you know, get rewarded with a larger voice. Lock my tokens up for a year. That implies at least that I'm not going to make any decisions that uh, you know, imperil it in the next year because I have this strong vested incentive to to continue to be, you know, that, that it continue to be useful. Um, I guess the there are always workarounds for this is one issue. Like, you know, if there's a mechanism by which you can short tokens, then you could lock up the tokens and then you could short them and have a net neutral position but still get all the voting power benefits. Um, uh, you know, it, it's like likewise, uh, one of our devs has been working on a way to uh, basically wrap the ERC20 voting token in an ERC1155 um, wrapper, meaning that uh, instead of, so the current situation is an account delegates to another account, so all the tokens you have are delegated to someone else. If I send 10 of my tokens to you, they're delegated to whoever you delegate to, or nobody if you haven't done that. Uh, the idea with this wrapper is that you would have like a different type of token for each delegate and they'd all be interchangeable, but I could send you some Makoto tokens or some Jeff tokens or some Vitalik tokens that are delegated to that person and they would remain that way. And the advantage here would be that often we see a lot of like gradual loss in voting power because people move tokens between accounts or they trade them or whatnot and they lose that association of being delegated. Um, but the problem is, and, and so you can you could also incentivize this. You know, you can say, you know, if you, uh, you know, you do this, you can yeah, like stake your tokens and so forth against uh, somebody, and you get rewarded proportional to how much they participate in governance. You know, because you want to encourage people to delegate to people who are active. But like everything else, this is so gameable. You know, you you can just imagine someone will set up a robot that. Uh, you know, like a contract that owns tokens and votes no on every proposal, uh, regardless of what it is, and therefore automatically gets 100% of the participation bonus. And then they'll write a wrapper that wraps your, like, tokens in, you know, to, to, to delegate to this. So they're once again just regular ERC-20s. They work as before. It, only now we've got, like, an active disincentive to do the very thing we wanted to make people do, you know. It's mm. so tough to design these token economic systems, uh, such that not even just that they can't be games, but so that there's at least no incentive to game them. You know, I would be happy with like a zero incentive. You can do this, but you won't gain from it. You know, we posed this question in one of our one of our previous one of our previous episodes, and it's very easy for me to see kind of almost like the end state of what we are like. The benefit I think of decentralized governance and what you're talking about here is resilience. Ultimately, I think it's like pretty hard to make an efficiency argument, but with the right sort of tranche of protocols, ones that are sufficiently like necessary to the infrastructure of what we're trying to build in crypto, I can see a huge premium for resiliency. But a lot of the times what ends up happening in society is not even necessarily because there's like an Overton window that shifts where people decide we want to value this as a society. And the example that we talked about in a previous episode was power companies. They're natural monopolies. They could charge infinite, right? They could charge because we all need power and we'll pay whatever it was. But we, at some point as a society, were like, look, we want, we all want access to power here, right? So we, we'll, we're going to limit the return that these utility companies are allowed to, uh, you know, realize on their, their CapEx, the, what they invest in their business. Where that hasn't happened really is financial infrastructure you know you could make I, we could sit here until we're blue in the face and talk about how it's great it's a it's a public good uh everyone should have access to their own uh sort of you know banking and financial apparatus but it's clear that in washington at least they do not believe that they just don't believe that that's the case so 
how would you respond to that? Like, how, how do you respond to this guy? Do we need to wait for an Overton window to shift and society to care about this and our lawmakers and policymakers to care about? What, what, do, you, what do you think about that idea? I, I think, yeah, I think that waiting or pushing is just about the only approach, really. Like, I would... I'm very far from a libertarian myself, and, you know, and, and so many of the the things that some of the crypto community espouse, I'm like kind of skeptical of. But then, you know, there are other areas in which I, I can't help but agree. And so things like financial privacy, you know, the, the general sort of rubbishing of the idea that you might actually want financial privacy really bugs me, you know, and, and the fact that it's just been normalized, like all of these KYC measures, which it's been demonstrated don't really effectively reduce money laundering but they do eliminate any hope of financial privacy. Um, you know, the fact that these just uncritically accepted as necessary to stop, you know, money laundering and terrorism financing and so on, when the evidence is they do no such thing, is is really depressing. And, you know, the, um, you know, the, the tornado cash thing is a great example of this. Um, a lot of people aren't aware, but the tornado cash devs actually built in mechanisms for compliance. You know, basically you could, if you saved the receipt from your tornado cash withdrawal, you could generate a proof that you could provide to say an exchange that proves where the funds that went into tornado cash came from, you know, so that removes that, uh, that layer of anonymity it provides just from the people you agree to provide it to, which is pretty much perfect. And it means that you can have anonymity from unknown people on the chain, but if you need to KYC yourself, if you need to prove where the money came from, you can do so cryptographically. That mechanism was just completely ignored by, you know, OFAC and by, you know, the Dutch prosecutors and so on, and they treated them as building a money laundering facility when, in fact, it would be exceptionally poor at money laundering because, you know, with all the KYC and so forth, what exchange is going to go look at it and go, oh, we can't see where the money came from. That's fine then, you know, <laughs> problem solved. Um, but none of that matters because the the um, current prevailing political opinion is that uh, anyone who wants financial privacy must be a criminal, you know, and so the facts of the matter don't seem to be relevant. Nick, I actually think we could do a whole nother episode on uh, financial privacy, but we'll, we'll save <laughs> yeah. that for another one. Um, no, I actually just wanted to go back to some things you said like 20 minutes ago about um, like the base, the base layer should be DAOs, but other things on top of that are applications. Do you think that all of the base layers have already been built? And the secondary question there is like, will we have any more DAOs? Should any more DAOs launch? Or like, is it basically just like figure out the current base layer, make those into DAOs and like, and then just build apps on top of all this stuff to make it useful. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think, I guess to address them in order, no, I don't think all the base layers have been built. Uh, I think maybe we've seen the types of base layer we can expect, you know, things like L1s and L2. Um, but the, you know, there are definitely more to be made. You know, the, I, I think we'll see exciting new L2s. I think we'll see innovations in the zero knowledge space, you know, all, all manner of things along those lines. Um, and I think many of them will be public goods or should be public goods and should have DAOs. Uh, but also more broadly, I don't think a DAO necessarily can only govern a public good, you know, or can only uh, govern a, a platform. You know, I think DAOs are a perfectly good structure for a for-profit entity as well. Um, again, as long in either case, as long as you build the right governance mechanisms to make things actually happen and other than argument, you know. Do you think any of the L2s are, are approaching it? In the, in the right way right now? Um, yeah, I think uh, Optimism is a, is a public benefit corporation, and I find that enormously encouraging. Um, Arbitrum, I'm less certain about their underpinnings, but I think they also take a generally open approach, which I think is really encouraging. I'm a little more skeptical of, of the approach of some of the, the them like Starknet, where they're like, oh, we're going to develop closed first and then open things up later. Um, I've and always... raise a lot of venture money. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I've, I've always felt pretty skeptical about that because my, you know, and it's similar when people are like, oh, we're going to open source the code at V1 or whatever. I'm like, I've always been like, just let it all hang out. You know, it, it's a the code's a mess. That's fine. Just say, you know, in the readme, the code's a mess. You know, nobody is going to like shun you because your first version didn't have perfect unit tests, you know, and it's never realistically never going to be perfect. So if you wait for that perfect moment, it will never come, you know, and you get so many benefits from open sourcing and sharing and, and 
uh, building an ecosystem even around bad code because it gets better, you know. What are, you mentioned some of the mechanisms, right? So one of the reasons why you didn't want launch ENS originally as a DAO is because there were some key mechanisms that didn't exist, like the comp- the governor contract. So what are some of the other, you know, it's, it's hard to point to uh, pieces of trustware that don't exist yet, but, you know, what are some of the other mechanisms that you think may exist or what are some of the gaping holes uh, from an infrastructure standpoint that exist to manage DAOs? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on-chain DAOs like Compound were a, a key development and it's the sort of, the idea was obvious, but, you know, building it and auditing it is a major lift. Um, I think there's there's a lot more progress to be made there around, particularly around tooling, uh, off-chain and on, but mostly off, you know, like for proposals and proposal management and day-to-day DAO governance could get an awful lot better. You know, what we do now is a sort of strung together combination of like Gitbook docs, uh, discourse forum, uh, tally for voting on chain, uh, snapshot for voting off chain, uh, synchronizing everything manually between those. You know, we've had at least one, well, we've had one vote that I had to embarrassingly ask everyone to vote down because I made a mistake when moving it from one place to another. You know, uh, something that sort of unifies all of that and is, is, you know, usable across DAOs is a really important development that just hasn't happened yet. You know, various people are tackling small parts of it, but nobody seems to be building the whole thing. Um, In terms of, like, on-chain components and contracts and so on, um, OpenZeppelin released their version of the the governor contract, which is based on uh, compounds but is a complete rewrite. And they've made it really modular, which is a really excellent starting point. I think ENS DAO was one of the first ones to use it. Um, but the fact it's modular makes it easier to innovate in this area. So you could, for instance, swap out the ERC20 voting token for like an 1155 token or, you know, for for um, uh, quadratic voting or whatever you see is, is suitable. How do you think, you know, from a even zooming out a little bit from the specific mechanisms, how are DAOs, how do you see them evolving? Let, let's just say, I don't know if this is your belief, but crypto is going to continue to be cyclical for a little bit. Uh, you know, innovations sort of get made in bear markets and then we see them through to the next bull run. And there's innovation that happens along the way. Like, how do you think the big, what do you think some of the big differences are going to be in the next sort of bull run for DAOs? Do you see the majority of uh, protocols being organized, uh, you know, in, in like a more more true to the idea on-chain version of a DAO, or what do you think? Um, I think we'll see more standardization and more professionalization in a way. You know, the the template of how to launch and run a DAO will become better established through the successes of of the DAOs that do well and the failures of the ones that do poorly. Um, The, uh, you know, and, and we can expect there to be more people who are, you know, professional delegates and so forth. And that comes with pros and cons, you know, the cons being more lobbying and more sort of, uh, you know, I guess, uh, ossification of governance and also potentially governance capture. Um, you know, the pros being that we have more people who actually like know what they're doing from the start and aren't feeling their way through this for the first time. Um, I think those could be the main trends in the next few years at least is there anything in particular that you're excited for in your like either in your domain or for eth as an ecosystem or tell us something that you're like excited about that might not be as as obvious to some of the, our listeners i for the dow i'm excited about us moving to like a more to a longer term vision and more sustainable sort of approach you know I've I sort of started the conversation around an endowment and its goal isn't to like weather this downturn or the next one it's to make a DAO that can last 50 or 100 years and I don't think many people are thinking about that um for ENS I'm kind of excited about some of the stuff we're pushing out now with with off-chain names and so forth and L2s and so on that will make it possible for everyone to get a name without paying transaction fees uh and we're even integrating with DNS in in more um you know, more functional and low-cost ways to enable that with DNS names as well. Um, and for the wider ecosystem, I guess I'm I'm excited about uh, the fact that Ethereum's ecosystem continues to be lively and and not ossified and willing to make innovations. You know, we're talking about things like the Ethereum object standard, about dank sharding, and so on. 
to continue to evolve the platform in the direction it needs to go and that we haven't fallen into the trap that Bitcoin had already fallen into by this point of resisting all change, no matter how well considered. What's the greatest risk to ENS right now, Nick? Um, I think uh, probably two things. One would be um, governance in action because of of internal disagreements and because of a fear of, of making changes or taking risks. Uh, you know, we have this big discussion going on around financial management, and there's a lot of people who are very cautious about doing anything other than just sitting on ETH. And I worry that that caution actually blinds them to other risks, you know, that we incur by being in that position. Um, and the other one is the one you alluded to is governance capture. You know, we try to make it as unaffordable and unattractive as possible, but there's still the possibility someone comes along and manages to swing a vote in the direction they want purely because of their vested interests. Would you say those are the two biggest risks to DAOs in general, not just ENS? I think that's a reasonable take, yeah. Yeah. Have you created a fake word yet and put it in this conversation? Uh, I, I've I've created one, but I haven't found a way to work it in yet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a couple. I've got a couple of real ones. I think I, I think I was cheating well. by asking that. Uh, okay. Yeah, you were. Um, okay, I got I got one more question for you, Nick, which is just on the value of community, which is something that we've been trying to suss out. Which is, you know, if you rewind the clock about a year ago, the the value of DAOs was really in the community, and you have your you know, it was like a find your thousand true fans or whatever. It was like kind of that idea, but for shipping products. And you start with the community and you've got this great pipeline already into them. And and talking to some of our uh, people on this season, there's pushback against that idea. So I'd be curious to get a sense of how you think about the value of community in a DAO. It's been mostly pros and a few cons. You know, the, the few cons to start are there are always a few people in a community who are very loud and very sure of themselves, but also very sort of single-minded on some topic that is their pet topic. And they can easily derail conversations for as long as you'll let them. You know, you can end up in a situation where everything becomes about the pet topic and nothing can get done, you know, because everything just sort of gets derailed into these endless circular conversations. But the enormous plus has been attracting, like, so many more... Um, people who are enthused and dedicated and and you know want to work on this and build this than I could have foreseen you know the part of it's been the growth of ENS in general but part of it has been the 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 outlet the DAO has provided you know for these people to to actually make meaningful contributions um and I've really seen it when we since we launched for instance the uh, the small grants rounds where every month you know five projects get an ETH each to to help kickstart them um, just the number of things people are building, uh, you know, in and around the DAO because they have a feel that, uh, you know, they can make a, a meaningful contribution here and that, you know, they're allowed effectively, you know, just giving them permission to be involved. I think those are all the main, the main questions that we, we have, I guess, Nick, you get the final word on the entire season, my friend. If you, uh, if people take away one <laughs> sentence from this entire season on no pressure, Nick, the no promise pressure. of DAOs, yeah, no pressure. Uh, you know, what do you want people to take away? No pressure, yeah. Uh, I guess uh, one of the biggest problems DAOs face is that people decide for themselves that their voice isn't useful or valuable or that they can't make a meaningful contribution. And so often low participation is because people have pre-selected themselves out of it. Uh, and I think more people need to realize that actually you don't have to be in some special position. You don't have to have a track record. You don't have to... Uh, be a prominent individual to make a meaningful contribution. Well, well said, Nick. Well said. You have certainly been our most uh, verbulous guest of the uh, of the season. Verbulous, <laughs> 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 great. <laughs> that was I, actually I, that was that was my made up word. I didn't know if you dropped. I one figured. Side. Yes, yeah. I did. I did pick that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I asked I asked Dali for to make up some words related to cryptocurrency, and it, it came up with cryptotecture, which is the architecture and design of cryptocurrency technology and systems. So I was going to oh, try wow. and slip that one in. Oh man, yeah. you guys! I wouldn't. Yeah. Have, I wouldn't have questioned. That's, a, have that's the theme of it. season three. <laughs> theme crypto, crypto texture, yeah. Um, 
Nick, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Yeah, this was fantastic, man. And, and congrats on everything with ENS. It's been awesome seeing you guys grow and become this like backbone of the industry. So yeah, keep on doing you. Thank you. Great episode. That was, that one was a lot of fun. I just like Nick. I've never, I've DM'd with him a lot. Um, one time there was like this, I was trying to buy an, a, a, a name on, on ENS and I messaged him and he was like, basically went into customer support mode and really helped me out. And we just exchanged a bunch of DMs. But this is the first time I've ever talked to the guy, and I, I just really like him. He's very mission-driven, but not in like a crypto maxi mix, uh, mission-driven type of way. Do you, know what I, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I got the impression that he genuinely is some person who's motivated by trying to do good things, improve his surroundings, and he's clearly someone who you know has a very strong work ethic as well. So it was, it was very cool because I think, I think his perspective was a little bit distinct from some of the other people that we've talked to so far in in this season and i thought it was a great you know very true to the ethos of of what we're trying to do here in crypto and with DAOs, and i just loved it as a conclusion for for this yeah so i did too tell me a big takeaway tell me what you're thinking about after that episode yeah i i really think he helped cement for me sometimes it's funny to hear someone just really believes it themselves and it just had a very clear-headed not some big crazy vision of the future but it was just very easy for me to walk away with this idea that look if you're building the the base layer infrastructure uh, of, of a new financial system, then yeah, you want to be optimizing for good decision-making, but really you want to be optimizing for resilience as well. And if, if you if you use the analogy of, this is the, the one that people in crypto love, but TCP IP and HTTP, those open early internet protocols, which are a really good example of really public goods, uh, you know, that, that a lot of the modern day internet is built on. I think there's a very compelling... There's a very compelling case where, yeah, you do sacrifice a little bit of efficiency and good decision making in the early days of a startup. But I think the the premium that you get for the resiliency and the environment that you create for other for-profit entities or companies to build on is immense. So I just walked away thinking there's a lot of merit to what he was talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, what did he so, Okay, so he had his... So his thesis is that public good should be DAOs here in crypto land, and so something like ENS should be a public good. Well, I, th- I, th- what I heard him say is that he, he thinks all protocols that are close to the infrastructure layer, to the infrastructure uh, layer, yes, okay, yeah. good point. So what, what, he, what did he say again about Uniswap and like? Aave? He actually drew, he drew the distinction. I think one that we've talked quite a bit about, and I like. You can look at, I personally wouldn't necessarily put Uniswap in the bucket of a public good. I, I would. Because, and I, and I think he was making that argument as well, unless I'm totally misunderstanding, because Uniswap is an application. Uh, and there's probably, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't know, you, you hear this come up a lot in discussions about Uniswap v3. And all right, now we've solved liquidity. It's already has the most dominant market share. So everything should be that's the public good, and then we'll build stuff on top of that. And I'm just not necessarily that's convinced. I'm not convinced that that's actually how it works. Like, you need to find a way to maintain that competitive advantage for yep. for Uniswap. It's it's a it's a financial exchange. I I'm not really sure why that should be a a public good. But I think what he you know where he I like I mean definitely I I don't think that you would hear many other people arguing that Ethereum should be anything other than a a public good. Bitcoin should be a public good, in my opinion, as well. What he's dealing with is the same thing we're dealing with. Centralized company or decentralized company. It's people management and creating incentive plans. And it's just funny to hear um, that that's the exact same thing that he's working on. And it was interesting to like, that seems to be, I know he mentioned his two greatest like fears at the end, but like, it seems like the biggest thing that maybe keeps him up at night on a more like short-term basis and more like in, in the now is, is just like, how do you incentivize people? How do you, how do you create incentive systems that, that propel the DAO forward? Yeah. I think if you zoom out far enough, everything is about people management and, and <laughs> incentive creation. What do you think about his biggest fear being the VCs? Um, and, and I think, uh, I think that, I think that got him thinking. I think he had already thought about it quite a bit. And, and I don't even think this is like the VCs getting undue influence. I, you know, we talked about this in the last episode with Chris, where I really am of the opinion yeah, that all the people right now who are saying, yeah, no, no, no way, I'm not going to buy in are the same people who are going to be ripping VCs for getting outsized allocations. Like this opportunity is there for for all of you. Right now it's VCs in TradFi land. This is more, 
this is more sort of in the land of hedge funds, in the realm of hedge funds, I think, kind of like vulture funds, or it's kind of like the bad side of, what do you call the funds at Carl Icahn? Activist investors. Sometimes activist investors actually come in and they say, hey, like the way you have governance set up here is not necessarily proper, or I don't think you're doing what's in the best interest of the shareholders here, and they're supposed to be these white knights. I bet that's true like half the time. You know, probably the other half of the time, there's a little bit of corporate rating being done and a lot of profit extraction, frankly, from businesses that were probably fine. And I think I think the analogy is probably more to like activist investors like Carl Icahn than VCs. Right now, the, right now VCs is the, sort of the boogeyman because they're the active professional capital class in crypto. But eventually, I think what ends up standing in there is hedge funds, basically. And yeah, I think it's a... And people worry about this in corporate America all the time. That's why they have like poison pills and that you hire f- fancy investment banks like Lazard or whatever to help you protect against active investors coming in and just buying up a whole bunch of shares and then taking control of the company. And then in the worst case, extracting a whole bunch of profits and harvesting value instead of creating new value. So yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a valid concern. I think the reason it probably hasn't happened yet is because... Probably a lot of people that would be sophisticated enough to try a stunt like that don't believe that when you're doing value buys in a lot of these companies right now, like they're sort of protected by their own high valuations. But yeah, probably will be a concern eventually. Anything else from the app? I had an enormous amount of fun this season. I think I want to digest some some thoughts before we, we come back with our like full list of takeaways. We'll do one more app. We'll do a recap app. And... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, Jason and I have, we, we are between two topics for next season. I'd be very curious, anyone who's listening and who's made it uh, all the way so far in this episode, if you guys have topics that you'd like to see Jason and I explore deeply, uh, would love to get your your feedback. This is the topic for season three. So if you tweet tweet at Mike or tweet at me um, and let, let, yeah, let us know what you want the topic for season three to be. All right, buddy. This was a fun one. I'll see you on the other side.